thread. God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome back to Thread, episode 81. Uh, Today we're in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. If you're new to the Thread podcast, this is a podcast for leaders. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of leadership books out there, and I've read a ton of them, and there's a lot of really great teaching, but the the older I get, the more I realize I really don't have a whole lot to say except to dig into God's Word and to come up with eternal truths. And so leaders need a special kind of diet. If you're an athlete, a high-performance athlete, you need a special kind of diet. And if you're going to be a leader and a person of influence, whether it's uh, on the job or in your family or in a ministry or at school, uh, if God has called you, and I think he's called all of us, to lead either with a small L or a big one, you know, we're all called to be an influence over other people, and that's what a leader is. Some people have a, a special gifting to be a leader of, of larger groups of people, and that's something God just has to give you and build you for. But either way, you need, you need good mind food and good uh, spiritual nourishment, and that's what Thread is all about. So we look in Scripture for c- concepts and uh, examples that leaders should follow in their own leadership. And today we're looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15 on the life of Stephen. Uh, give you a little background on this. Uh, in the verses before it, uh, we saw the church, the early church, in its very first internal conflict. And this conflict threatened to undermine the trust because there, there were questions being raised about the fairness of the leaders of the church and whether uh, the apostles uh, cared equally for everyone or mainly just for people that they knew. And so they responded to this criticism not by hammering the critics and not by uh, pulling out the uh, do not touch my anointed text from the Old Testament and preaching those, but they listened to the critics and they said, you know, why don't you guys just handle all the money? And so they just turned the money over and the feeding program, that was what was at uh, at the center of the controversy, was a daily program to f- bring food to, to widows. And they said, why don't you guys choose uh, Greek Jews that you know, we don't know a lot of the Greek people because there had been a huge influx into the church. They said, why don't you just choose seven leaders and then we'll look at who you've chosen. If we feel good about them, we'll agree. And then we'll lay hands on them and we will give them, uh, we'll share the ministry. We'll give them the responsibility and we'll hand them the money. And the people were you know, delighted at the spirit of the leaders because they showed that it was real. The thing that they preached, the thing that they taught, the new kind of kingdom and the new kind of family that we were part of through Jesus uh, that this thing was real. And so uh, they chose seven, and two of the seven, first one was named Stephen, and the second one was named Philip. And both of those become men of importance as we go farther into the story of the very first um, disciples of Jesus, the very first church. 
let's let's read verse eight. In verse eight, we get introduced to Stephen. It says, "And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people." Um, and this is really important. Uh, you know, Stephen is the first among the serving deacons. He's in charge of this feeding program, and we're introduced to him as a man who's who has this spirit, you know, to take care of people and to love people, but that he's a man that's absolutely filled with two things. You know, he's not filled with insecurity. He's not filled with ego. He's not filled with ambition. He's filled, first of all, verse 8, with faith. He has absolute trust and confidence. He lives by it. He lives by faith. He lives in a very positive, upbeat way. He believes that God is in control. He believes God will take care of him. He believes everything that was taught to him about Jesus. You know, Stephen believes it. He is full of faith. And he's also full of power. That word dunamis, full of dynamite. You know, he is a man that, and Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, and the, the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, but the person of the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, Jesus said, you're going to receive a power for living, a new kind of power, not just personality power, not just the power of a good education or, you know, power of a good skill that you've learned uh, by hard work. Those are great, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the power that comes from God. It's a gift. And Stephen walked in this gift. He was full of it. He was full of faith and he was full of power. And Stephen's uh, life uh, took him out in the public every day. He was anointed well beyond his role of taking food to um, widows. You know, but his servant's heart set the tone for a great ministry of signs and wonders because Stephen addressed the needs that he saw. This is really important because it's, it's part of the characteristics of the early church, the democratization of the charismata, the gifts of the Spirit. As everyone enters in and we all become a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests over us, we become a kingdom made up of priests, people who can go into the presence of God, everyone being able to go into the presence of God and bring back from God whatever is needed supernaturally to address the needs of the people that we see. And so here's Stephen and his ministry uh, takes him house to house. And as he starts moving around the city every day, when he sees needs, he believes that God wants to do miracles to give Jesus uh, glory and to let the people know about the gospel. And so uh, Stephen lays hands on people wherever he goes. If he sees someone uh, sick by the side of the road and begging, he lays hands on them and heals them. People start to see him coming every day and they they welcome this miracle ministry that he has. But it's more than miracle ministry. He he dialogues with people, you know, and that's kind of what this is. It's show and tell. Once a miracle is done, and miracles are temporary, everybody that gets healed later gets sick again. Uh, everyone, even who is raised from the dead, will die again and stay dead. So 
All miracles are a temporary solution to a global problem that only the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ can solve. He will fix the big problems one day, but for now we get miracles. And the miracles are here to stimulate our faith and to give us a talking point so we can say, see, this is not just a crazy talk. This isn't, um, you know, this isn't just religion. This is real. It's a reality. And so Stephen is going around and he heals people and he casts out demons and great power from God works through him. And then he engages people who are standing around, who are watching the situation. And that's how it goes. You know, it's kingdoms in conflict. Signs are warfare against the oppression of the dark side. And when you start witnessing to people, witnessing is conflict. You're going into a, a bound person and you are working to set them free. And that puts you at odds with the dark side, with the devil's kingdom that wars against God. But uh, Stephen understood that miracles have to be followed by explanatory words. And he became a powerful witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he went about every day boldly announcing the kingdom of God. And in verse 9, uh, you know, everything's going great. And then verse 9, we are introduced to conservative religious people. And conservative religious people, you know, on the one hand, it ought to be that we can just applaud conservative religious people. And I guess, in a sense, that's what I am. I mean, I, I, I'm religious in the sense of Everything I do in my life is related to my beliefs about God. Uh, I work so hard that my value system in reality lines up with my theoretical um, belief in God and the things that, uh, that I believe about God. And I really try to live by that. Uh, and I, I, I would say I'm conservative. I don't want to see a liberal... Um, morality. I don't want to see. I just feel like that's just a path of destruction. And yet, um, conservative religious people are like the bane of the earth. Everything we're dealing with right now, even in Islam, it's conservative religious people. So here's, here's a problem. So certain they are right. Always right. Never wrong. Can't be wrong. Can't admit to being wrong because there's something in it it just, uh, there's a fear that can get in them. And I guess they're just scared if one thing's wrong, then their whole system falls down and they've got to fight. They're the righteous warriors, you know. They're not listening. They don't listen. They don't grow. They're closed off, insulated people just attacking with zeal any new thing, especially any new thing related to God. Defending tradition to the death. You know, when somebody comes to me and they say, I'd like to see your doctrinal statement. I just, I would love to celebrate that moment and say, thank God, you know, I've got a, I've got a brother or a sister and they, they want to celebrate with me truth about God. But when someone asks to see my religious, my doctrinal statement, it's like, oh man, now you're just going to want to fight. You know, Jesus' worst opponents were Pharisees. And if you if you had to put him in a camp, he would have been a Pharisee himself. He he believed as they believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed that the entire Old Testament 
was the inspired word of God. You know, he they were the group in Judaism that he was the closest to. And that, that's why it drove him crazy that they could be so right. And they really were right. And conservative people are so right about so much of what they believe. But it's that that pride, that fear, that blindness, and especially when you stop listening. And so a group of conservative religious people that called themselves the freed men, I guess they had been former slaves, and now they were so proud to be free. Uh, And they are from a variety of places, and they disrupt, they dispute with Stephen. They want to fight him. They want to argue with him. And, uh, you know, you've got this whole group surrounding one man, and they lose. And this goes on day after day. They find him where he is in, in the city again, and they've got their better ideas now of how they're going to argue, and they're in front of him again. And, you know, they, they rise up, and they can't resist him. Verse 10 says they couldn't resist him because he had two things they did not have. One, he had wisdom. Uh, Greek word Sophia. It means uh, skillful, practical insight into the true nature of things, you know, how life really works. And so Stephen had a handle on that. When he spoke, it wasn't just, uh, I had a revelation of this and I had a revelation of that. The thing Stephen said made sense, made a lot of sense. And uh, they could not resist him. They couldn't resist the fact that he had Sophia. And they couldn't resist, secondly, in verse 10, they couldn't resist the spirit by which he spoke. And I think when we talk about the spirit by which he spoke, there's two things being said there. One was the tone. You know, he had, and wow, this is an important discussion. I don't know what I'll say about it, except we've got to be careful about our tone. Now, I live in Asia, and Koreans are some of the most dynamic. You know, the, the church growth in the nation of Korea over the last 50 years, it's just been breathtaking. The 1980s especially. The 80s and the 90s. Wow, such a movement. Uh, but people, I have Korean friends, and they tell me that now there's such a cultural backlash against anybody that, that rises up and says that they're a Christian, a born-again Christian, a follower of Jesus. And a lot of it is not about Jesus. It is not at all. I've been there. I've seen the manner and the method and the abruptness and the, mm, it's the tone. You know, we've already seen in the book of Acts where Peter has to confront a mob and it's him versus them. And he looks at them and he says, my brothers, and he's got this tone, you know, and Stephen has that same tone. He can He's touching people. He's loving people. He's not just you know, wanting to fight them. He doesn't want to fight them. He wants to move them, though. Okay, so Stephen had that. They could not resist the tone that he used with them, the spirit, the spirit by which he spoke. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, too. You know, the intelligent anointing of the Holy Spirit. God himself flowing with Stephen's spirit and Stephen's personality flowing to minister to these people. 
And uh, this group just goes back to the old tricks that conservative religious people always use, and that is, verse 11, call him blasphemy. Blasphemy, blasphemy, you're speaking against God. And they manufacture a charge against him with malice. Uh, blasphemy, blasphemy means a blapto, in Greek it's two words, black, blapto, uh, femi, to uh, speak injuriously against, to try to say something that will damage the person. And so they, they say, blasphemy, blasphemy against, number one, Moses. Interesting that Moses is first on the list. Um, blasphemous against Moses and against, secondly, God. I mean, why isn't God first? Um, I mean, it's just a lie. What in the world has Stephen said that was an attack on God? It's a total lie. But it doesn't matter because in verse 12, it's really easy to do this. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. Well, now we're going to see one more mock trial, false witnesses. And uh, but when you when you um, verse 13 says they brought false witnesses and they said those same, you know, you have to use the same legal words there so we can prove the charge. Ah, blasphemous words. We've heard him speak it. Uh, he spoke against this holy place, the temple, and he spoke against the law. Verse 14, this is the heart of their accusation. He is, uh, he's bringing them face to face with their need for change. And they said, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs. Okay. Jesus is going to change our customs. And Jesus is going to destroy this physical place. You know, where did they get that physical temple? We'll look back in history and you'll see that one of the most murderous kings built it as a monument to himself, a religious monument. Took him over 40 years to build that temple. This isn't the temple Solomon built. It's on the same place. Uh, This is a, a man that's got no business building God a temple. And Jesus didn't. Respect the place. He respected God. He respected the worship of God. But when he looked at that temple, and it had become an industry, a money-making business for religious uh, hierarchy. They had their sacrifice system. You had to buy sacrifices from them. They had a money exchange where you had to take your pagan money and convert it to temple money so you could pay your temple taxes and your tithes every year. And the whole thing was just so the priest could make money. Uh, there were some sincere people there who were really seeking God, and those people would not be dis- disturbed because the God they sought would be found. But those who just wanted a business, religion business, Jesus did say every stone is going to be torn down. He didn't say he was going to tear it down, but he said it would be torn down, and sure enough, you know, within 35 years, this temple is gone uh, and has never been rebuilt. So, you know, when we call to, about bringing change, you have to understand the emotional impact that the fear of change creates in people. And we need to understand that gospel ministry is a wartime, not a peacetime endeavor because it is spiritual war against the powers of darkness, against those entrenched principalities in the heavenly realms that worm their way into even sacred human systems and institutions like the temple. And, you know, so Stephen is a man that we have to look at. We're going to, the next lesson we're going to spend on uh, chapter seven, which is his words in his defense. But Stephen had a short, powerful, important, influential life. 
He served God's purposes in his generation. He made his contribution, and then he finished his race. And that's that's what we're going to watch out of his life. You know, question we all have to ask is, you know, how long will your life be? Stephen died as a young man, and I don't know how long I'll live, and you don't know how long you'll live. The point is to live for influence, to live so as to move others away from darkness and into God's kingdom and into their own salvation through Christ. Stephen loved these people, and he loved them enough to engage them with respect, but also with a forceful energy, even if that meant losing uh, the friendship of some of them and risking his own life. He's a good example for us. Uh, I told you before about that T-shirt I saw when I first moved to the Philippines. It said, comfort spoils usefulness. And Stephen was a useful man because he gave up his focus on being a comfortable man. He spent his days out looking for opportunities to connect with people he changed a lot of people. He ministered to a lot. Many, many people look back on what Stephen meant in their life. But at the end of this story, we're going to see the tremendous impact that he has on one man in particular who will later become the key to the explosion of the Christian movement across the Middle East and all the way up into Europe and to the kind of Christianity that we, we have today. So we'll see that coming up. Good example, Stephen, loving people, but understanding that sometimes in your ministry, as you're reaching out, you have to gear yourself up for a certain amount of pushback because especially conservative religious people are not always listening. Good word, good example. Let's put it to use. If you want to write me about anything, please do that. I'd love to hear from you. Chuck at Quinley.com. That's all for now. See you next time for more on Thread. Log on to Quinley.com.